Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. Venture for Canada is a national charity on a mission to foster the entrepreneurial skills and mindsets of young Canadians. Our vision is a Canada where young people can equitably realize their entrepreneurial potential to build the most prosperous place in the world. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs and to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season eight, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. In this episode, we're joined by Bruce Sedley, the CEO of Credit Canada, the country's oldest non-for-profit credit counseling agency. He comes to the role after two decades as a business journalist, personal finance expert, and financial literacy consultant. He was an anchor for BNN Bluebird in Toronto and New York City, a contributor on CBC TV's The Exchange, and the host of Million Dollar Neighborhood on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Bruce is the money columnist for CBC Radio, and he hosts a national weekly radio show for Sirius XM. Bruce sits down with Scott to talk about fostering financial resilience in entrepreneurs. I am so excited to have Bruce Salary on Venture for Canada's podcast, A New Wave of Entrepreneurship, to discuss the important topic of fostering financial resilience in entrepreneurs. Bruce, how are you doing this morning? I am great. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. For context of listeners, Bruce Celery is a board director uh, at VFC. Bruce and I have known each other now for uh, close to six uh, years, uh, and uh, it's been great to call you a friend, Bruce, as well as uh, to work with you in, in this capacity at VFC. I feel exactly the same way, so that's super convenient. To dive into the conversation, what is financial resilience? It is the capacity to withstand financial difficulties. So resilience as a word is the capacity to withstand or recover quickly from difficulties, and that can be in any area of life. So financial resilience is just that through the lens of the things that matter to us financially. And there's a bunch of research on this, a whole bunch of different components, but I can take you through um, some of the key ones, and maybe that'll set the scene for how we think about it as it relates to entrepreneurs. The first is basic economic resources. So what is your income? What do you have in terms of savings? What do you have in terms of access to emergency funds? You can imagine that if you have zero savings and you're hit with some sort of financial blow, either in your business life or in your personal life, you're not very resilient because there's no padding there. There's no soft cushion. The second thing is um, what we call financial resources in terms of products and services. So you need access to credit, you need insurance, you need certain um, you know things in terms of estate planning and powers of attorney. There's a whole bunch of things that are very product and, and service oriented. And then the third area is knowledge, right? Like what is net worth? What is cash flow? What is credit score for entrepreneurs? How does a PL work? What's a balance sheet? Like these kinds of bit, what's a burn rate? Those kinds of things. Um, and knowing them and understanding how all those things work can make you much more resilient than the person who doesn't have that knowledge. The next dynamic or component is what's called social capital. So these are the connections uh, and the access to social support. So you can imagine that if you had none of the first three things that I mentioned, 
but you had a network of people around you who could fill in the knowledge or the economic resources or the financial resources, you'd be much more resilient than someone who didn't have uh, that community, who didn't have that social, those social connections. And then another one, and this is in no way an exhaustive list, but another one is your mental health. And I think where that connects fundamentally to resilience is that if a human is dealing with anxiety, if they are dealing with depression, either chronic depression or circumstantial depression, if they have ADHD or some other, um, you know, real issue for them, it minim it negates some of the financial resilience that may be like super strong in every area. So they've got the economic resources, they've got the financial resources, they've got the social capital, they've got the knowledge, they've got all the things, and yet they're dealing with some other less tangible dynamic. They get hit with the blow and they can be flattened quickly. What are some of the common ways that folks misunderstand financial resilience? Uh, so I don't think we talk a lot about it. We talk a lot about the knowledge piece, which is really like under 10% of what it takes to be financially resilient. There is an underappreciation for the mental health dynamic for all Canadians, but I think entrepreneurs uh, in particular. And I think there is a, a tremendous amount of um, shame, embarrassment, concern, um, misunderstandings about finances to begin with. And people feel like they should know this already. And it's a way that they feel around finance that they don't feel in other areas. Like I don't feel like I somehow should know how to braise and brine and sous vide and barbecue and, you know, fillet a turkey. Like I don't feel like I should know how to do those things. I've just never learned them. I know some people know them. I just don't. With finance, people feel like everybody else knows better and they should know. And that's a big First of all, it's not true, but it's a big challenge for people because then they're less likely to say, oh, yeah, I totally need to learn that and I'm going to go and learn that. Why do you think people feel that way? Uh, I think it's uh, in large part our culture. And it's a culture that is uh, common in the Western world, but in particular in Canada, we don't talk about money very much. And in the absence of those conversations, the pressures, the external pressures that we are under are exacerbated. And the two that I would highlight are um, access to credit and our consumer culture. So our consumer culture has us want, 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 want so many things in every area of our life. And our um, access to credit has made it possible in the short term to buy more of what we want, but what we don't necessarily need. So when you have that um, push to want and need more, you have an ability to access those things, and you don't really know how it all works in the first place, it becomes very, very difficult to take a breath, pause, reach out and ask for help. To the point about the uncomfortability that a lot of people have in talking about money, why do you think it's such a difficult subject for so many people? I think there is a cultural taboo. It is not something that we uh, were taught in school. It's something that many families struggle with, so they are unable to model uh, great behavior and to teach those um, 
to teach the knowledge and the skills. And, uh, you know, I think sadly it's getting worse because in the past, and I'm going to sound like such an old fogey here, but in the past, the institutions that surrounded us took care of so many more things. So let's talk about retirement savings. Back in the day, you either got nothing or you got a defined benefit pension. And there was a good number of people who had a defined benefit pension plan. The frequency of those pension plans, like the, the how common they are, has dropped dramatically over the course of decades. And what has risen in its place is defined contribution pension plans, which is basically like you get some support from your employer, but you're making all the decisions yourself. So if you don't manage your saving throughout your career, you're kind of hooped because the government programs are wholly insufficient. So there's more onus on us as individuals to know what to save, to know where to save, to know how to invest. And there's a part of that that's awesome, like so great. We've got agency, we've got ways that we can do things differently. But a part of that is really problematic because we just don't have the support. We're not kind of marching along on a predictable path in which the outcomes are, um, are better for us. In preparing this interview, one of the, the things I learned was the difference between financial literacy and financial resilience. And at, when we were having initial conversations, I often was using the term financial literacy because that is the term that I grew up with. That's the term that's used much more in the media and, and society. What's the difference between financial literacy and financial resi resilience? So financial literacy is really about skills and knowledge. And you know, the word literacy, what that's, you know, the ability to read and write. Financial literacy is what is the knowledge uh, that one should have in our culture about what's an RSP, what's a TFSA, what's cash flow? And then the skills that are required in order to be a functioning adult. So you need to have a skill in basic budgeting. You need to have a skill in basic goal setting. So those are the things that are um, on the literacy front. Interestingly, you can have very low financial literacy and very high financial resilience. You can have high financial literacy and low financial resilience. So think about an entrepreneur who comes from a very wealthy family. Uh, they may know nothing about money, but their resilience is very, very high because from an economic standpoint, a financial products standpoint, social connections standpoint, they're good. They'll just move back home. The business fails, they'll move back into the basement of their you know, suburban home and hang out at the pool and whatever. It is a level of resilience, financial resilience, that a first-generation newcomer to Canada, a low-income uh, entrepreneur, if that's their background, they simply do not have. The other thing is, when you do not have financial resilience, you can make very poor business choices. Uh, and I, I'll give my own example here. So I was an entrepreneur from a very young age. At the age of 13, I bought my brother's year-round property maintenance business. So I'm ending grade eight. I have two commercial snowblowers, uh, riding lawnmower, regular lawnmower, weed whacker, all the things. And I drove around my neighborhood with a big trailer and serviced customers on contract. So... Every, I didn't sell one-off lawn cutting or one-off snow removal. Everybody was on contract. So I ran this business 
And I bought a used riding lawnmower to yank this trailer around and it broke down regularly. And it was a source of incredible stress to me. I was, it was just so incredibly stressful. Because I had low financial resilience from an economic resources standpoint, I couldn't practically afford one. And I felt psychologically that I could not afford one. So I repaired it and I, I took a small engine repair course at the local community college. And I prayed and prayed and prayed that it would hold up. But the better business decision would have been to borrow money and buy proper equipment so I could scale the business. But I didn't have the financial resilience um, to do that. So that's an example. I could have all the literacy in the world about a P&L and borrowing, but I didn't have the resilience and that affected the choices that I made in running that business. What do you think are the negative social consequences of there being often much more of a focus on financial literacy than financial resilience? Well, I think we miss the big lever to improving outcomes. So literacy, I'm going to over oversimplify here, but if financial literacy is about knowledge, it's not what we need. What we need is we don't need improved knowledge. We need improved behavior. So I often say that I would rather have one unit of insight around money than a hundred units of knowledge around money because I need people to behave in a way that is consistent with um, a life well lived. I don't need them to know about it. So if I could snap my fingers and just have people behave in a way that was um, consistent with the goals that they have in life, that's worth way, way, way more to me than knowledge. And it's not that the two are completely uh, distinct because sometimes knowledge leads to insight, but it doesn't have to. And I'll, I'll give you an example of someone who was raised in a home with a healthy relationship with food. So, you know, in my family, uh, you had three meals a day, plus snacks, there was always a vegetable, there was a carb, there was meat, you had a piece of fruit, and then you had cookies. So my behavior around food is by and large, pretty good. Do I have a tremendous, did I grow up with a tremendous amount of knowledge around food? No, like I, you know, grew up in London, Ontario in the 70s and 80s. I just, you know, sushi was a foreign concept, never even heard of it. Um, but the behavior that was modeled and that we followed was so consistent that I didn't need knowledge about intermittent fasting and vitamin D and sous vide and brazing and brining because the behavior that I was um, taught and was modeled and that I continue to uh, live with today uh, was what I would need to live a healthy life. Now, caveat here, I love me some very high calorie desserts, like anything that is cake or cookies or croissant. I love it all. So it's not to say, I don't say this from a puritanical standpoint. I say it merely to highlight that knowledge is a bit of a red herring. If we go and just build knowledge, it won't do the job. It's not what people need. People need the insight that drives solid behavior. Thinking of your own life, Bruce, and, and financial resilience uh, and reflecting on your own experiences, like what are defining examples of how you foster financial resilience in yourself? So I uh, have always had a very keen eye on the top line. 
on revenue since I was very young. With that business, um, I've been pretty restrained about spending. So that starts well. Where that becomes a problem is when one is saving for saving's sake. So contextually, I grew up with parents who were raised in the depression. My mom saved everything, including the wrapping paper at Christmas time and the elastics and all that stuff. And I grew up with the context that money was for survival. And that if you make one wrong move, you are gonna end up in the ditch selling pencils on the street. And so I think in my journey, um, and in particular, given that this is like now what I do for a living, I really needed to set up a different context for money for myself. And so I had this epiphany in my 20s that money is not for retirement savings. It's not for stuff. It's not for survival. It's for adventure. That is the entire point for me personally, not for everybody, just for me. And so I still do all the things that you need to do to get a handle on your money and keep a handle on your money, but I do it for a reason. And I think that is really critical for entrepreneurs to think about what's the reason, what's the purpose for money. And some entrepreneurs would say um, it's for prestige and that's fantastic. And you should have the biggest house and the fastest jet and the fanciest clothes and all that. But a lot of entrepreneurs really want to make an impact. And sometimes they lose sight of that fundamental drive to make an impact. And they wake up, you know, 10 or 20 years later with the biggest house on the block and a, um, uh, a deep, hollow feeling that this is what their life has become. So my journey has been uh, about learning, certainly the knowledge, but also the insight of what is the intersection of uh, you know what I want and what makes me and my husband and my child and my family happy. What do we want? And now let's do the work to go out and get it. You mentioned that you had that epiphany in your 20s that changed your view of uh, money and financial resilience. What do you think influenced you to have that epiphany? So I, um, I did all the right things. I am a rule follower. I was good in school. I went to, I did the right activities. I went to the right university. I started at the right company, Procter & Gamble, Royale Facial Tissue, soft on the nose, strong for the blows. And in my 20s, so I was, you know, probably 26, 27, I went to Central America for three weeks. And the purpose was to figure out what the holy heck I was going to do with my life. And I took this book called I Could Do Anything If Only I Knew What It Was. And I was bound and determined to work through this book through El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala. And I did so. Um, and, and it was that book that asked the questions that had me recalibrate what I really, really wanted for my career and the barriers that I had in terms of being the kid who did the right thing um, financially. Because I was on a track, there was one chapter called On the Wrong Ladder and Climbing Fast. And that was my experience at Procter & Gamble. Like I'd been promoted and here I was doing all the things. And if I just kept on this ladder, I would have it made in the shade. The only problem is I could not stand assessing the designs of facial tissue box covers. That just made my soul weep. So one of the questions in this book was, if you could do anything and knew you would be successful, what would it be? And the answer for me was television. I would be on television. So I quit my job, moved into television. 
How that relates to money is there were many steps that I needed to take in order to be financially resilient in a career change. So one of the things I did that was so practical and still strikes me as so odd and funny is that I didn't quit Procter & Gamble immediately coming back from Central America. I took six months and I saved money and I did all the things and I bought a proper couch. It was very important to me that I have a grown-up couch. Before I left this job with the dental and the stock share plans and all that stuff, I needed a proper couch. So I guess that's the lesson for our listeners here is this financial resilience begins and ends with a proper couch. If you have a proper couch, then you're good to go. So that is a very long way to say, I have had um, many inputs in, in terms of my self-actualization. So it's hard to pick just one that crystallized that as an insight, but certainly that trip was a big part of it because I had to ask myself, what the holy heck am I saving this money for? If it's not for being able to quit my job and pursue the dream. When you think about the moment where that epiphany perhaps became the clearest to you. Can you describe that moment and how did it feel? I was in a small restaurant on the shores of Lake Panahachel in central Guatemala. I had been traveling by myself, which is um, something I had done before. And it's both freedom and deep loneliness in equal measure. And I had been resisting reading this book for a year and a half. I'd got it as a gift from a friend and it had sat literally, I'm not kidding, in the trunk of my car for a year and a half. So I had to book this vacation and go do that. And I'd been reading through and doing the exercises and all that stuff. And I read that particular question and it was, I can only describe it as being hit by a lightning bolt because the answer was so clear. And I realized in that moment how deeply and convincingly I had been lying to myself, lying to myself about what I really, really wanted. And I was pretending that I didn't want it. And the reason I was pretending was because I was terrified, absolutely terrified. So I had that insight reading that very particular question. And I felt two things. First, excitement. Oh my God, it's clear. It's finally clear. Here I am in my late 20s and it's finally clear of what I am meant to do. And terror, terror, absolute terror. So um, a couple of days later, I was flying through El Salvador and I picked up the phone and I called my very best friend in Toronto and I told her that I was going to quit my job and pursue um, television. I would be on television. And I said, um, I know that as soon as my plane lands in Toronto, I am going to change my mind. For sure, I'm going to change my mind. I'm just going to be terrified. And I'm like, that, that was stupid. I'm not, I, told, I was kidding. I'm not doing that. So I said to her, I need you to hold me to account for this. I have said it. It is my sacred bond to you that I'm going to quit my job and pursue my career in television. And it will be a really terrible idea as soon as I come back to Toronto. And she held me to my word. And six months later, I indeed quit my job and it was the best decision that I have ever made. That is a great story. And I can visualize it so strongly. And also it's a testament to how friends and social networks are such an integral part of financial resilience. 
you know, here's one other piece of the story. So I flew through El Salvador, as I mentioned, I then um, arrived on the next part of my journey. And a part of that, um, I, I arrived, I picked up my luggage, and it had been pilfered. And they had stolen my shoes. I had been wearing Tevas on the plane and they had stolen my shoes from my checked baggage. And so the next day I had an excursion where we were hiking up an active volcano and I had to do that in Tevas because I didn't have a pair of closed shoes and the lava embers burnt through my socks. So I don't know what I should make of that as a metaphor, but it certainly was uh, an appropriate and very visceral experience as I then walked up a, you know, live volcano in pursuit of this dream to be on TV. So there I had it literally walking up a volcano and then six months later had it metaphorically as I pursued my next career. And I think that that metaphor can also apply to many entrepreneurial ventures and the risk that entrepreneurs face as they launch uh, new things. On the topic of financial resilience, what do you think are some of the most prevalent challenges that entrepreneurs in particular face as it relates to financial resilience? Uh, entrepreneurs uh, as a you know fundamental um, outlook on life have a diluted optimism. And it is requisite, it is inspiring, and it can be problematic sometimes because you need that diluted optimism to believe in this thing that you're inventing and creating, but you also do need to have some sort of grounding in reality. So I would say that's you know the pro and con of the uh, entrepreneurial mindset. Um, what I think is critical and what great entrepreneurs do, unless they're lucky. So there are entrepreneurs who are just lucky. They're just lucky and it all works out and they are resilient enough that they can weather the storm and move on. But I think the successful ones um, who aren't lucky hold two thoughts at once at the same time, success and failure, vision and money. So they hold that their deeply held belief that they're going to be successful, and they also have the capacity to plan for um, choppy waters. They have the ability to say, it is all about the vision of what we're creating here as a company, and it's all about the money. It's all about the vision. It's all about the money. Two seemingly disconnected or contradictory notions need to live in the mind of the entrepreneur at the very same time, and that's exceedingly, exceedingly difficult to do. Yeah, and it's such an important point, uh, in particular, I think the one about misguided optimism that I think to think you can beat the odds to create something new uh, is both a blessing and a curse. And I think that many entrepreneurs kind of dance with, uh, dance with dreams uh, and that, that can, that's both a, an amazing thing, but can also be a really uh, challenging thing in, in so many different kinds of ways. One, to the point about financial resilience, and it was something I was thinking about earlier, is let's say you have a situation where an entrepreneur is, has a net worth of $100 million, uh, and uh, all of their assets are tied up in illiquid things, in private investments, uh, potentially they own a couple businesses, uh, and they own real estate, and they can't access any of their capital. 
Do you think that this person would be considered financially resilient? Probably not. So from a practical standpoint, probably not. And then if we overlay the whole um, mindset and mental health dynamic, who knows? It would be dependent on the person. But I think you point out a really important piece is um, entrepreneurs quite often fail to diversify. So, uh, and you get why they wouldn't diversify because they do have to have this blinding belief and blinding passion for the business and investing in themselves as the leader of that business and betting on the business. But um, great investors diversify. So to that person with $100 million, they would, in order to be as financial financially resilient as possible, they would want to be diversified. So they'd want to have I don't know, I'm making up numbers here. They'd want to have $10 million in something that's completely liquid. So could be cash, could be money market funds. Um, they'd want to have some in real estate. They'd want to have some in venture capital tech. They'd want to have some in stodgy old, old world exchange traded funds, whatever it is. And if we bring that down into kind of more our reality of Canadian entrepreneurs are not sitting on $100 million. But how do you find that level of diversification? And it is exceedingly difficult because we know how hard it is to fund a business. So a lot of entrepreneurs will say, I'm, I'm refinancing my house. How I'm funding the business is I am refinancing my house. How I am funding my business is I am cashing in my retirement savings. And I have heard this on a number of occasions. Mostly when you hear about it is when they're successful right? Because then they're like, oh, you know, I bet the farm. I sold everything and bet the farm. Uh, what we don't hear is when it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, then you've got an entrepreneur who not only has a failed business, but they don't have retirement savings or they've lost all the equity in their home. So I think um, how an entrepreneur thinks about their business in that way. So you're not just going to have one revenue stream. You're not going to have just one funder. You're not going to have just one employee. You're not going to have just one of anything. You're going to diversify. It's crit critical from a strategic standpoint. As they think about the wraparound of their personal finances, they need to think about how do they diversify. And I'll give you a practical example for uh, entrepreneurs who are coupled. They may say, okay, like, only one of us is doing this at a time. So hooray for you. Thank you so much for being an educator and working a job job so that we've got the basic mortgage covered while I go out and swing for the fences on this crazy new app that I have this dream for. That's a way to diversify. You've got um, two people in that relationship. One is maybe making some sacrifices to work in a job job, but they're able to pay for the mortgage and the groceries while the other person takes the higher level of risk. It's funny that last point you mentioned, because that was literally the question I was going to ask uh, as a follow-up was about diversification in terms of spouse's income. And it's funny, uh, over the years, I have observed that many Venture for Canada fellow alumni are end up married to doctors. And they're, <laughs> right. and I sometimes I'm like, oh, that's weird. I was like, how do like, there's like 10 alumni who are now married to doctors. And there's like not that many alumni who are even married. It's like half of all alumni who are married are married to physicians. And uh, while obviously love is a motivation, I'd also think it's important to that people, that there is that degree of matching, right? Someone who is, is really an entrepreneurial risk taker with then somebody who is in a lucrative, stable um, doctors aren't going out of business anytime soon. Do you think they put that on their Tinder profile? Like as they're looking for their potential spouse or like must have steady, reliable 
income. If they don't, perhaps they should, because I think that's a very good idea. But it may be a subtle thing that some people look for in, in general. I, I mean, I once read that the most important financial decision someone makes in their life is who their spouse is. Yeah. And uh, I've been with Dennis for 23 years. He is an artist and uh, artists are, by nature are entrepreneurs. They create things that don't exist. They are vision oriented. They're sometimes not particularly practical. They need to be that way. And I think, um, you know, for younger entrepreneurs, as they do think about this question of who are they a fit for, I know it's cliche to say opposites attract, but I could put it in very uh, staid business terms and call it diversification. Don't marry yourself. Can you imagine if I married myself, we would like slaughter each other in cold blood within a week. It would be a disaster. I agreed. I, I think that the diversification piece and opposites attract uh, is something that applies to, to relationships as well. On the broader topic of financial resilience and entrepreneurs, what are some of the tactics that entrepreneurs can use to foster financial resilience in themselves? So I think, first of all, it's going to sound like a equivocation here, but I think the knowledge is critical. The knowledge around um, basic P&L management, burn rate, what the business model could look like. And for entrepreneurs, especially in um, the white spaces in the market where nothing exists, it's made up. You are making it up. But at least take a shot at making it up and saying, I don't know, I'm making a piece of software and it's going to be software as a service. And I don't know, that's kind of like 200 bucks a license per month. And so I need to sell this many licenses. So have that basic rigor uh, and, and, and funders will request or require that. Um, so I think that toggling between this big vision and, and then the strategy that flows from that and the financials is critical. There are many, many resources for entrepreneurs in this country, perhaps not enough, but many. Uh, VFC provides some, BDC provides others. There are govern government programs everywhere. So being well-versed in what those uh, programs are can be really, really helpful. I'd also say from a mental health standpoint is to keep that on the radar from the get-go, to know thyself. So, um, you know, uh, I'll use uh, an example of some entrepreneurs that we know in the zeitgeist. They may not be diagnosed as having um, bipolar characteristics, but some of their behavior would be consistent with that. And listen, it's not like it's a, I'm not making a generalization here. What I'm saying is for people who have massive, massive swings in energy and productivity, there are pros and cons to that. And how do they surround themselves with people who will um, uh, magnify their bursts of vision and productivity and then mitigate the challenge when those are um, when they're in a period in which that's not what they feel or the activity that they are up to. So kind of thinking about going back to this social support and this community, <clears throat> it doesn't have to be staff, doesn't even have to be a spouse. It could be a mastermind group or uh, something like that, that can help round out the edges uh, and include that social component on financial resilience. Family businesses are arguably the most prevalent type of entrepreneurial venture, and not just in Canada, but around the world. 
Uh, and a huge percentage of the world's largest companies are uh, family companies. I believe the richest person in the world right now is, uh, this, is the CEO of LVMH, which is like a, a family uh, business. And I can imagine family businesses have unique opportunities and challenges as it relates to financial resilience. What do you think those are? So I would say highlight two. Uh, one is communication, and then the second is succession planning. So families are families are a thing. I'm the youngest of the original five kids. My father and stepmother have a daughter, so I'm I'm one of six kids, three parents, thirteen grandkids, and we have this annual event in the summer called celebration celebration when everybody comes together for one day prior to the pandemic it was a mandatory event you had to be there and we all were and any family has its own dynamics imagine if the family was also your employer uh communication times a thousand right and you can see how that plays out on the tv show succession in the royal family you can see that there are real gaps in how uh, members of that firm communicate the second is around succession and i think um it's exceedingly difficult to navigate um the complexities of family dynamics with skills and with merit so Rogers is a great example of um, a really challenging succession story and how that worked out for that company. And it's very, very common. So how do you apply the traditional rigor and metrics of performance management and you know all that especially it could be a family business it could be like one retail store it could be a convenience store it could be you know a dry cleaning service or whatever how do you think about a being a growth oriented uh productive organization when you've got people who work in that company who are there in large part because they were born into that family instead of recruited and trained and developed in that way. So I think those are two very, very big challenges. Um, I've done a bunch of work with farming families over the years, and they are major entrepreneurs. Like you want people who have resilience, you look to farming families because they have generations and generations of dealing with flooding and drought and equipment and commodity prices and all that stuff. And there's a through line that exists in agriculture and in many family business is it's just about so much more than the business itself. Talk about retirement for a farmer and the expression I heard, which I thought was just amazing is so, so many retire uh, farmers, rather so many farmers just plan to die in the dirt. That's the plan. And that is not as in work until the very, very end. And that is not the case for people who have job jobs. So culturally, there's something that is very, very different. I have a friend who grew up in a family farm in Saskatchewan, and the way he describes his childhood and just the way that they run their business to, to this day is, boy, the work ethic, like just the waking up at like five for very intense periods of time. They do. I didn't realize a lot of farmers, uh, in particular in Saskatchewan and Alberta, will go live in like Mexico or in uh, Victoria for like three to six months, like a year. So it's, there's very intense periods of work and then there is a lot of relaxation, but the work ethic of farmers is, is very admirable. Also on the topic of family, one of the things I've been thinking about is 
there's a policy element of how can schools foster financial resilience? How can um, governments do it? But also how can families do it? And how can parents foster financial resilience and the right kind of habits in kids? What, what advice do you have for parents or, or would-be parents on how to embed the values of financial resilience? First, get clear on what those values are for you. Because we talk about values in a very generic way in which we, it kind of seems like there's an assumption that A, we know what values mean, and B, that they're the same for everyone. And they are financial values or values around money are different for every single family. So you know, within your, you know, life on this planet, some value, some families value education above all else. So I, no, you're not getting a job. You need to focus on school, 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 school. And another family would say, no, no, I value work above all else. So you're going to work, 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 work. You're going to go to, I don't care if you go to college or university, you are going to work. And other families who value pleasure and they uh, work to live also valid. So uh, for families to get clear on what those values are for them, articulate them, distinguish them, have clarity around them, because those values should and do drive the norms in that family, the knowledge in that family, and the skills in that family. So I'll give you an example. Um, we have a very strong value in our family of three, but in my family of origin as well, of financial independence. So I was raised with an allowance and there was never additional money. There was no, oh, I want to go for a movie. Can I have 20 bucks? No, no 20. What do you do? What? No, you have an allowance and you can work. And here are, you know, here is a list of five things you can do on the weekend to earn yourself extra money. So that was the value. The norm was we get paid allowance and there's no topping up. And then the knowledge was what do you have in your account at any given time? Literally, it was in a ledger because my dad had so many kids. So there was a ledger. And then the skills around budgeting. So when I wanted to withdraw money from my allowance, I remember I, I remember these conversations with my dad so vividly that I can picture where in the kitchen the ledger was kept. So it was on the top shelf of the cupboard on the left, right by the door to the laundry room. And I'd say, dad, I want to withdraw some money from my allowance. And he would walk on over to that ledger. He would reach up to the top shelf and pull down this little accounting ledger and flip it open to my page. And we would look at the balance that I had. And he would always ask me, what's it for? And he wouldn't judge what I was spending the money on, but he wanted me to be mindful. And I'd be like, okay, <sighs> me and my friends are going to go to the um, convenience store. Oh, great. What are you going to buy? I'm thinking... I'm thinking I'm going to get some sweet tarts because you can get a pack of sweet tarts for a dime. Now, I may take a whole dollar and get a Mr. Big because Mr. Big was the best size of chocolate bar uh, for the price. So that would be the chocolate bar that I would get. So that's an example of the values of our family around financial independence playing out in the norms of our family and in the knowledge and skills. So if you start there and think, what are the norms that we have as a family? Um, it will illuminate so much about the practices that you embrace as parents. One topic I've also been intrigued and been thinking about in the context of this interview 
are unique challenges that members of the queer community uh, might face as it relates to financial resilience. Um, we're both gay and definitely something that is probably we both thought of at, at different points. So Bruce, what, what do you think are unique uh, challenge or unique unique challenges and opportunities that uh, members of the queer community have as it relates to financial resilience? It's a fantastic question, and I feel somewhat ill-prepared to answer it, which is going to seem odd given my lived experience, because so much has changed since I was a young person. And so it's not to say that there aren't um, sort of centering things around people who are LGBTQ+. Plus. Um, it's that there are also so many differences, right? So I was raised in a family, I didn't come out till I was 23, but once I did, it was completely fine, no big deal. Here we are in, um, you know, 2023, and there are still young people who have a horrible time coming out. They are rejected by their family. So if we look at it through the lens of financial resilience, you could have two kids in a family, one who is gay comes out and is cut off and shunned, and the other who is straight and is um, funded through a master's degree and things go on. So I think it uh, there is a family dynamic. There is a dynamic around the mental health that that individual has because of where they lived and how their sexual orientation was viewed in the communities that they were raised in. I think uh, in our culture today, we're just so much better than better off than decades ago. And that's harder for people who are in their early 20s to appreciate because we're not there. And you look at the headlines in the US, like we are clearly not there. But I will just give you an example in terms of two things that happened to me in my career. One was when I worked at Procter & Gamble, I was explicitly told that I was not to declare my sexual orientation when I was out speaking at a public event. And I, 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 what? You're, what? I'm going to speak about um, being gay in the corporate world. And I'm not allowed to say I'm gay. Like, how does that even work? And so I declined that request. I did the speaking event and it was all fine. And now, you know, the people who I was working with back then, they're like, that didn't happen. Oh, a hundred percent it happened. I have my notes from the day. I couldn't believe it happened. The second thing that happened was, um, my executive producer, uh, when I was first on television, brought me into his office and said, you sound affected on the air. You sound affected on the air. And, um, you know, so we got to figure out, but basically we got to figure out a way to butch you up. And I tried <laughs> to do that. And then I think over time I was like, that's just not who I am. And so you can either have me on the air or not. And those were two really, um, big things in my career. Subsequently, by the way, uh, I saw that uh, boss of mine who I had great affinity for and who was extraordinarily supportive of me in my career. And he apologized. It was more than 20 years later and he apologized. And I 100% accepted his apology, um, but the times are different now. So I think what I would layer in is um, for 
people who are outside the norm. They are neurodiverse. They're LGBTQ plus. They, you know, whatever it is that has us um, uh, be different than some air quotes norm is show your colors, all your colors, be yourself. And um, if people can't hear or listen or see you for who you are, keep shopping around. Someone will. It's This is the time in our history in which it's fantastic. I think those um, the soupçon of diversity is so exciting um, and we don't have to be fearful. Not that we don't have to be fearful at all. We don't have to be fearful like we were back then. And hopefully, Scott, you and I and how vocal we are about the, the lives that we live and the choices we have made um, will make it easier for those who come after us. Um, so I, I listen, I'm a deluded optimist. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a deluded optimist. It's going to be totally fine. It's great. And to a point you said earlier, to thine own self, uh, be true. And it's interesting to reflect the extent to which self-acceptance and self-reflection uh, and having a positive sense of self is so highly interwoven with financial resilience. And I think that often when people to our think about financial resilience, they would just think, oh, how much money do I have in my bank account? How, what's my net worth? And to our earlier conversation about what is the distinction between financial literacy and financial resilience, financial resi resilience is so much more. Bruce, this has been such a fun conversation. We've covered a really wide range of, of uh, topics. Uh, candidly, the conversation went in directions that I wasn't planning at all. But that is one of the more fun things sometimes about interviews is that they are, you have a, a you know, kind of a, a map, but it can go in many different uh, directions. And I've, I've loved the different directions that we've gone in uh, today. Thank you so much for all of your candor. It was totally my pleasure, Scott. This went in directions I didn't predict either, and I loved every minute of it. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our socials and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture for Canada, that is Venture for Canada, or email us at podcast at venturefocanada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Latifa Farah, and that was Scott Sturrett. Until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful.